everyone to uh, the first in a, a long line of conversations with some of the uh, with tech leaders and tech minds from the uh, Austrian community. Um, Patrick Waits, the uh, co-founder of Coltech Global, a staffing business that's uh, looking to uh, establish itself within the Austin tech community. And today we've got the great pleasure of having Chris Holland with us in conversation. Chris is a technology leader with over 20 years track record, working among and building teams, delivering success and very much a goals and IRR driven technology leader experience of advising startups and, um, you know, and being part of uh, the technology scene for, for many years. So, so welcome, Chris, and thank you very much for joining us today. Well, uh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. A little bit about myself. So I work here in Austin since uh, 2016 at a HR company here in Austin. And uh, so I've been in tech since the mid-90s, pretty much. Oh, yeah, I was a software engineer and um, I got into uh, kind of more leadership roles in the, around 2007. And then uh, just kind of, you know, built up, you know, my career from, from there. I've worked with companies of different sizes, some startups with a dozen people. Uh, bigger companies with uh, thousands of employees. You know, I've learned a lot the hard way at all these places. Uh, I've been super fortunate uh, to work with uh, amazing people. I've made a point of, of learning as, a, as much as I can, kind of, you know, working with them. The nice thing is, you know, every, every company has its own set of challenges, especially when, you know, size differs. It's been a very interesting, uh, very interesting ride. <laughs> From being within, you know, being in the, in the in the tech industry for so long now, and then seeing the growth and the change across across Austin in particular, what is it uh, the, the moment or the, the the tech scene, should we say, within Austin that's uh, that impressed you the most? What's super refreshing here is, you know, I, I've seen amazingly talented and driven people from uh, all sorts of backgrounds, whether they're, you know, graduates from university, like a UT, or some folks who, you know, for example, were bartenders and attended a boot camp and, you know, or learned on their own. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, resources now to, to learn how to be a software engineer, for example, uh, that are free or very cheap online. You know, and based on how people feel best about learning, there are, you know, different resources that would, will give them more or less guidance. And I've seen a lot of people with amazing drive, amazing talent coming from different walks of life. And I think uh, our industry is, is, is a great opportunity for a lot of people. People ask me, you know, is it too late for me to become a software engineer? You know, I'm 55 years old. And I'm like, no, do it. Uh, because it's so much easier now to learn a lot of things that, that, that we learn. Uh, than it used to be way back in the day. And, and every day, there are just kind of more resources available. And from what I've seen in the Austin tech scene, uh, there's a really good, strong, diverse crowd of people from different age, different ethnic backgrounds, different accessibility capabilities who have made the most of all these things. And they are uh, entering our tech scene. And I got the immense privilege to meet and work with a number of them. It's been you know very, very refreshing for sure. Is that one of the biggest changes you've seen it over the years? Is the accessibility and the ability, as you say, the you know someone that is old, you know maybe who's fifty five years old and making that career change, or you know seeing the grads coming through and becoming so much more of a mm-hmm. you know engineering and working in tech has become so much more prevalent in over the years. Is that one of the biggest changes you've seen that the, the, the sheer size? Yeah. Of- 
and, and not just in Austin, but I've seen it in other markets. In 2018, I sort of started, you know, speaking at conferences, you know, on different topics, and I got to meet a lot of people. And I've, and I've seen that in, in many locales. I definitely see it here in Austin, uh, people from all walks of life. There is such a thirst for talent in our industry. And, you know, a part of my learning process uh, throughout all of this in my career has been to be less polarized on specific skills that people may have when I have a position open on my team and to start paying more attention as to what their coaching path might be. Because I think that opportunities do get missed from people kind of polarizing, you know, hey, you know, I need PHP developer. Well, it turns out that, you know, I've hired uh, some folks from a C-sharp or a Java background, but since they deal with object orientation, there's a you know really good path uh, into PHP, for example, right? But th there are people sometimes um, who are not quite a fit for a senior level position that I may have open on my team, but because during the interview process, you know, they're showing an eagerness to learn and they're, you know, taking cues well, and, you know, they're, they, they seem to be taking feedback really well, and, and they show that, that they would be, you know, coachable, then I've been open to downgrading a rec from a senior position to kind of mid-level position and put them on a coaching path. And that's something that I've tried to get better at over the years is to build teams that uh, foster a, a culture of, of collaboration and, and learning and kind of elevating one's you know, skills uh, within the team. And, and I think that it's something that I'm every day I'm trying to get better at, you know, better at coaching people, uh, better at coaching other folks to coach other people uh, as, as well. And, and kind of, again, this culture. And I found that when I've been successful at doing that, it's definitely, um, you know, paid off in a big way. And so if you look at the tech scene here and kind of what I mentioned, you know, you have a lot of talented folks, you know, uh, graduating from, from boot camps. And maybe the boot camp doesn't quite teach the exact skills that I need for my rec, but because I've tried to set up my team in a way that bringing in somebody new who wants to, you know, work and learn, they'll be in a good position to learn pretty fast uh, and, uh, and get really good. And what I found, especially in the past recent years, somebody with th that, uh, you know, we hired not even, you know, a couple of years ago is almost from a just ability to execute interpersonal skills and everything, the ability that, that we can depend on them, you know, pretty close to a senior level, right? So that's another thing that I've learned longer years is I'm not polarized at all on years of experience. Uh, and I do think there's a lot of gatekeeping uh, that's happening in our industry when it comes to, you know, to fill a specific position based on the number of years of experience. Um, and I see it the opposite. And I see it the opposite way. I see companies, you know, slotting somebody in a senior engineer position because they have, you know, 15 years of experience. Often, what happens is that this person hasn't necessarily really grown their skill set over their career. Right? It's it's very easy in our industry to kind of get somewhere, get pretty good at something, and and just kind of stay pretty complacent uh, there, and you know, still you know do pretty well. And by and large, it's it's pretty okay. But I mean, you know, you gotta. I try to put everything, uh, to take everything with a grain of salt, and I try to look at, at really what people know what what can do, and then what their growth path could look like. So. Yeah, I think mean, that's that's really important, especially with the advancements in tech and the growth in the market, and more people looking to be involved. It's not necessarily the years of experience that is going to make someone better for the team or when you're trying to build a tech function it's about the you know being able to learn being able to mold being able to grow within the business and being able to uh, to learn more i suppose is probably a key more so than years of experience 
Having advised and been, been involved with tech startups over the years, what is one of the reasons, one of the main reasons you would see that a tech startup or a startup business would fail? Or, you know, how can businesses best prepare to scale? You know, it's a pretty complex subject. I mean, you know, a company can succeed or fail for many reasons. You know, obviously my wheelhouse has been tech, right? And, uh, you know, I can't... Uh, claim to you know know everything about business and you know yeah, of course. build a successful startup and because there are a lot of components to it you know I, I've seen things you know with regards to what is your marketing strategy if you have content what's your search engine marketing strategy you know how will people find you organically you know how are you going to compete with your marketing dollars effectively against your competitors I mean I used to work for an online travel company it's, it's a brutal field. You're a small boutique travel company and, and you're trying to compete against the Expedias and Travelocities of the world. It's very challenging. You've got, you know, now with, with social media, uh, you know, what is your strategy there? You know, how, how do you engage your users? You know, because you're going to spend money. <laughs> you're going to spend a good amount of time, energy and money to get people to your platform. Uh, you know, how do you captivate their attention and how do you keep them coming back? You know, I've, I've worked at companies that, where, you know, we try to do things like gamification. You know, if you sign up and you do these three things with our, our application, uh, we will give you 10% credit on your next whatever, right, for example. And so these are all strategies that, that, that you got to, you know, think through ahead of time, which can really make uh, and break the success of your startup without even get, getting into technology, right? If you look at all these aspects, though, your technology execution is is going to to matter a lot because your technology team is going to support you know your sales teams. You know you, you want to make sure that your sales team has something to sell. You know you want to make sure that you have a good finger on the pulse of what people you know may want to buy. Your tech team is also going to work closely with with your marketing efforts and your social media engagement as well. So when it comes to tech execution, one thing that I've seen sort of hurt companies, there's a lot of kind of this, especially at a startup level, you know, we just got X amount of funding and we're on the hook to hire, right? Let's hire, 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 right? We got to get, we got to get the headcount. A lot of things can go wrong. Let's say if you hired five or six engineers at once, right? And you haven't had a chance to kind of establish, you know, cohesion among your team members. And, you know, it's, it's not kind of, uh, you know, factory workers where, you know, you just kind of throw bodies at the problem and things will magically appear. I've seen this play out. And, and what tends to happen is, you know, there's a lack, lack of cohesion within the team. Uh, there's a lack of agreement as to what coding standards we should use, which architecture, you know, we should be using. And also kind of toxic team dynamics often. A big part of a, you know, su- successful software strategy uh, is, is code reviews. Code reviews matter a lot. But if you have toxic team dynamics, those are not going to go well and people are going to push them aside. And, you know, people are going to build things are disjointed from what really, you know, could have been solved with uh, short discussions among team members. So when your team doesn't communicate, they don't cooperate well, you're going to get, you know, five or six people kind of writing code independently and kind of accumulating technical debt at a astronomical pace. uh, And that's going to hurt, especially startups, because as a startup, you have to pivot quickly. You get your MVP product out there and you're going to learn right away whether or not this interests people. And you might get feedback from people and you might want to 
capitalize on that feedback and and implement new things and maybe pivot kind of the direction of your product, add a brand new feature that you hadn't thought of. And the problem is when you have everything that you've built so far to get to your MVP product uh, ends up to the, as this monumental pile of code that is very hard to understand, very hard to modify. And it, it's, it's almost impossible to build something new without breaking something old or change an existing piece of functionality you know, without breaking a bunch of things. That will rapidly kill you. And a lot of startups and companies at large really tend to underestimate how fast you can get to this unwieldy technical debt. You know, let's say you have four or five software engineers on your team and, you know, you, you haven't addressed kind of those better practices up front. Within two months, you will have a code base you cannot work with anymore very quickly. As I've spoken at, at conferences on a lot of these topics, you know, I'll get CTOs and CEOs and managers and even software engineers kind of approach me and they're like, yeah, yeah, we felt that, you know, uh, and so they've kind of, you know, shared these experiences and, and sort of, you know, lended a lot of, you know, truth to, to what I've seen firsthand. You know, I was like, am I the only one to see this, right? And from what I've learned traveling around the world, uh, you know, chatting with people like all of us, it's pretty pervasive in our industry. And so, you know, the, the interesting thing is a lot of companies equate doing something well with doing it slow. Uh, that's... Yeah not the case. It, it comes down to skill, right? If you have the right skill level, you can get, you can build something, you can get that MVP out through the door in a way that everything that you've built so far to get out through the door is actually foundational. It's actually an asset. It's not a liability, right? Uh, whatever you've built are a set of loosely coupled components, which you know, you can easily invoke different sequence uh, to make uh, different functionality. You can easily augment the system by adding more components. Uh, and it doesn't take you more time to do it. You're just doing things differently in a way that makes you a lot more future-proof so that when you get to market, you get the MVP out there and then you're like, oh my God, we should be doing X, right? You're like, yeah, that's okay. We can do that. It's not a big deal. You know, give me about a week and, and you got it. As far as dynamics that go from... Um, so you get your, your MVP product out the door and you learn quite a bit. Uh, and, and that will be a driver of change. But another big driver of change, especially with startups, is typically in a startup, you know, the founder, the CEO, CTO, often their time is invested in raising funds, right? And so they're kind of traveling around trying to pitch the thesis of the startup to investors and kind of get them to invest money. And because guess what? We got to make the next payroll. Right. Often one of the dynamics that happens there is as you engage with investors, an investor will say, you know, I like what your business is doing. That could also help the other business that I'm investing in. Can you add kind of this, you know, this support for like uh, X uh, into your thing? And you're like, well, that wasn't nearly on our roadmap, but uh, I guess we'll add it there, especially if you're, you're going to give us some money. Right. And so then, you know, they'll, they'll come back to the tech team and be like, hey, so guess what we're doing now? And, you know, and then, and then we're like, what? Uh, okay. But if, if you have built an architecture with components that gives you this flexibility, then it's not that big of a deal. You can almost take your business into every direction, but that's kind of what you, you got to think through. You got to assume that you're almost guaranteed that that MVP that you're getting out the door, it's going to be about 20% at best is going to be relevant. Yeah. That's why I tend to see out there. So.
From what I've seen as well, businesses that we've worked with and the experiences that we've had, and from what you've just mentioned there, it's not always about being perfect. It's about having the ability to, to iterate and change and adapt to the, to, the, to the needs as they come up. We've had the last 18 months, right? So things probably haven't yeah. gone to plan for, for a lot of people. So it's having that ability to look at where you are. And so actually, if we make this change and we can turn mm-hmm. this way or that way, this will that we can adapt to that change. So being able to have a team in place that has the ability to do that is, is really, really important. Yeah. The ability to respond to change is everything. I mean, in business in general, right? Uh, but it, in startups, definitely. And, it, and if you look at the Agile Manifesto, you know, agilemanifesto.org, right there on the homepage, it tells you, you know, their ability to respond to change. People take that for granted. You know, it's like, I'm going to have this great business idea and yeah, yeah, we'll be able to respond to change. But you really have to engineer this ability from the very inception of your engineering team, <laughs> your business at large, of course, uh, but definitely uh, your engineering team. So. I mean, that's some wonderful advice. Thank you very much for that, Chris. Honestly, that's a really, really good insight. With the ever-changing environment and with new technology advances happening all the time, what do you think um, or what solutions or tech do you see coming out that will make the biggest impact moving forward? Is there anything in particular that you think, oh, if, when once people start implementing this way of working or you know, using this tech or um, th- th- this model, uh, it, it will make th- the biggest impact? Having been in, the, uh, in this since the mid-90s, right, I've seen a lot of technologies come and go, right? A lot of stack, you know, this, this ability to do X is the way to go going forward. And then it's like, well, no, nah, we were just kind of reinventing a, a wheel that was, you know, that was already working. I'm not too polarized uh, on that. I mean, you know, obviously there are a lot of companies, you know, these days are doing fascinating things with, you know, machine learning. You know, I think it's going to be some time before we get to actual artificial intelligence, but like with machine learning, you can really look at kind of past patterns uh, and then train a model to help you identify kind of, you know, future patterns. And, and, you know, for any companies that deal with, you know, insurance, finances, trading platforms, there, there's a lot of interesting things that, you know, that are being uh, done there. And I think that's, you know, going to continue to evolve as far as kind of, uh, you know, impact, I think it's good to look at, you know, to keep an eye on technologies, right. And, and let's keep doing that. Um, but let's also understand kind of what, what does and, and, and um, you know, does not apply uh, to us. The, the thing is when you work with, with certain document stores, they are kind of resistant to normalizing your information, which is kind of a way to reduce duplication of information. And, and that can kind of hurt your business if you don't do this uh, very thoughtfully, right? And, and so not every technology is applicable to your business model. There are some trade-offs to be mindful of. For example, anytime you're, you're dealing with you know, millions of daily events with a kind of an infinite growth pattern, then definitely, you know, a NoSQL data store will definitely give you a, a huge advantage there. For other use cases, you got to be more careful. And, and this kind of tends to be the, a trend in the industry where people look at big companies like Facebook, right? So Facebook, when they built Cassandra back in the day, that was like one of the big popular, uh, you know, one of the things that caught a lot of people's attention and imagination in terms of, you know, document stores and, and kind of infinitely scalable document stores. But you got to look at what they were using it for. You know, it was for the most part kind of hierarchical, you know, comment threads. 
but they were still using relational uh, data store, uh, MySQL, uh, for a lot of other aspects of their applications. In fact, Facebook, uh, you know, there are contributors to the NODB storage engine, for example, right? Uh, open source storage engine for, for MySQL. Most often in technology discussions, a lot of context gets lost, right? Um, you know, somebody will see one article published by Facebook about how they did X with S X technology and be like, we should all do that, right? And, you know, my advice to people is like, you're not Facebook. I'm not Facebook. You know, for example, if, if Facebook says, hey, you know, we, we did the way with our QA team, you know, our engineers do a QA. Well, you know, here's what Facebook is able to do. They have billions of users. They have been able to instrument their application, you know, engagement metrics. You know, anytime you engage with any portion of, of the portal, they, they keep metrics on all of that to, to kind of measure ongoing engagement. And so what they can do very easily, I mean, very, you know, with our infrastructure um, uh, is anytime an engineer is ready to push something live, they can release it to a small segment of their population, which is still going to be millions of users, right? But it's gonna minimize the impact and they can observe those metrics against that small segment. And if those metrics go down below any levels, they can automatically roll that back and they can do that, right? But your average startup is you know, gonna start out with like five users <laughs> right? <laughs> Maybe you're going to get to hundreds of users in your first year. Maybe you're going to pop and get to thousands of users, but you're not going to get any statistical significance from releasing to a small portion of your population, because if you do that, you're going to release an update to like two people uh, you know, of your population, uh, and, and you're not going to be able to gather metrics. So I, I think when it comes to technology discussions and approaches for doing things, we need to be mindful of who put out the the opinion piece and, and what is their background? What are their circumstances? What is their context? And does this context apply to the rest of us? Sometimes it does, but sometimes it doesn't always. And we got to be mindful of, of that. I've tried to increase the effectiveness of my teams by looking at better practices. And there's a lot of wisdom that's been around for decades. <laughs> and it's like, there's no need for a for me to reinvent something, there's, you know, I've, I've, I've read books, I've seen, you know, uh, what people did with design patterns, with things like extreme programming and test-driven development and paired programming. I've found ways to apply some of these things into the context of, you know, whichever team I happen to serve. And when we did that well, it's been game-changing for us. Um, and, and so I, I try to kind of look at that. I suppose one of the, the really good point you made there is that obviously one solution or one way of working isn't going to work or using the use of one technology isn't going to work for every type of business because everyone's different and different types of users and, and so on and so forth. But the really, really important thing that every business would need, whether it's a Facebook or a one-person startup, is principles of ways of working and processes that they that fit to their structure, whether it's, uh, you know, you've got five users or five billion. Having that fundamental principles of working is, is so important. I suppose the, the last thing, obviously, I, I really, really, really appreciate your time. I could sort of mm -hmm. probably speak to you for hours and, and obviously take in uh, everything you're saying because there's a lot of things that I can learn, certainly. But as uh, just one piece of advice that you would give to any sort of tech leaders out there or, you know, what things that you've learned over the years, what would be the one piece of advice that you would give? Inclusion uh, needs to be a priority, especially when you start scaling your company. As an industry, for decades, uh, we have had a track record of excluding folks who don't look like me, right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, if you look at the Government Accountability Office, in, at, 
these stats are from like 2015. So I'd like to see them, you know, publish more recent stats. 78% of tech workers in the tech industry are male as of 2015. And then as of 2015 as well, 67% are white. And so, but if you look at, at the workforce overall, right, we white men are only 30% of the overall workforce, but in tech, you know, we're like 70%. And that's kind of, you know, globally, there are obviously, you know, pockets, different areas that are known to be a lot more than that, right? Especially when you go from a small startup with a small team and you're trying to grow your business, you're going to want to attract and retain talent. And none of us have any, I mean, beyond the obvious basic human decency here, right? Beyond, beyond that, it's bad business. I mean, I think as an industry, we're engaging in self-destructive behavior and not acknowledging uh, the amount of exclusion that we've been doing up until now and, and not putting enough of time and investment in diversity and inclusion. And, and, and this is a process that I, I've, I've had to learn quite a bit. You know, working with HR folks, I'm like, ah, just give me candidates, just give me resumes, right? But, you know, when it's all white dudes coming, you know, across it, which Look, I look at the skills is great, but I mean, like, who am I missing on? Who am I missing out on? Right. Uh, and that's a question I was really not proactively asking myself. And it's, it's something that, you know, thankfully, over, you know, the last bunch of years, I've learned to be more mindful of. And, and the thing is, it takes a lot of time and investment to reach out to uh, these broader demographics because so many people in our industry have been conditioned to be excluded that many of them will hesitate to apply for jobs uh, if they don't see themselves as like a perfect fit, for example, right? Much beyond that, they might be afraid that a company might not have an inclusive culture for them, right? They might be working at a company today, which may or may not be toxic to them, but at least it's a known quantity that they have, right? Um, but now if they start looking out there on the market, do they know for sure that this company that they're applying to uh, is going to be more or less toxic than the company that, that they're at right now, right? And it's not yeah. a guarantee. You know, my advice to tech leaders, to all of us really is to take a, a, a long, hard look at our, you know, hiring practices and how committed we are to get as wide a pool as possible of candidates so we can really, you know, truly pick the, the better fit for us. Because I, I, as you scale, you know, you, you're going to want to attract talent, but you're going to also want to retain talent. And it's, it's a talent's market. I mean, you've seen it. You are in the business. You know exactly how sought after. You know, I know exactly how long it's taken me to fill every position on my team. It's really tough to, you know, to, to find talent out there. So it's in, in our collective best interest uh, to make this industry welcoming for everybody. So I, I, I couldn't agree more. And then just going on some of those stats that you mentioned earlier at the beginning, it's it funny enough. It's something that we're quite big on at uh, Tech is looking at building diverse teams and trying to get a wide range of uh, candidates for, for our partners. And, uh, you know, it, it only improves, as you say, the retention of candidates, the uh, the ideas that come up, people from different backgrounds see things, may, may see things differently, so it enhances conversations within the business and pushes them forward. But in terms of those stats, women, women only make up 25% 
of all computer-related jobs across America. And of that, only 3% are actually African-American women and only 1% Hispanic. So it just shows, you say, the, uh, the lack of depth within the industry or within the workplace. But that's something that we can do as, as um, myself included within the staffing industry and as tech leaders is looking at that wider pool and seeing how we can, uh, how we can be more inclusive and diversify our team. So, yeah, I think that's a great piece of advice and um, something that we're taking very seriously as well. Yeah, so as I say, thank you so much for your time, Chris. Really, really appreciate it. It's some really great um, bits of advice there for, um, for tech leaders across, um, well, in, in any area, but especially in Austin, the growth of the market there at the moment. So um, I appreciate your time and I'm sure we'll speak again very soon. All right, thank you. Thank you, Chris. Cheers.